we have a lot of work to do as a humanity to dissolve the delusion of our separate nature as nouns, embrace the verb-like reality of our interconnection, and let awareness, interconnection, and love be the way we live. Namaste and welcome. I'm Vettina Blumenthal, and you're listening to the Soul Compass Podcast. I'm here to help you find your inner calm and deepen your self-discovery journey. Take this moment and focus on yourself. For your mental health, your ability to find ease in your everyday life, and your emotional well-being. It is so important that you nourish yourself not only physically, but also emotionally and mentally. Here at Soul Compass, you'll learn practical tips from experts who will leave you with a sharper focus and a renewed commitment to yourself. Welcome to another Soul Compass episode. So grateful you could join us today. I know I often say I'm so excited about this episode, but I truly am for most episodes. And today in particular, I am very excited, not only because the guest we have on the show today is someone that I've admired from afar for some time, but I also have a few different announcements that I can't wait to tell you about. First, a lot of you have asked me how you could give back or how you can participate more in the Soul Compass community, and I ended up starting a Patreon account, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, And I dedicated a few different levels of how you can participate and how you can join the community, such as weekly meditations, workshops, etc. So go over to Patreon, check it out, let me know what you think, and hopefully you'll be able to join us in some aspect of the community. And at the end of this episode, I have something even more exciting to share with you. It's something that I've been working on for almost a year. So it's had a lot of nurturing, a lot of love, a lot of patience. But at the end of this episode, I will fill you in on this particular project that I've been working on. Before jumping into this episode, let's check in. Finding that comfortable seated position. If you're in a chair, uncrossing your legs and grounding the soles of your feet on the ground. If you're seated, just pressing your sit bones into the earth and reaching tall through your spine and allowing the shoulders to draw away from your ears, placing the palms on your lap and closing your eyes if it's safe to do so. You know my disclaimer if you're driving, eyes on the road. Taking this moment just to breathe, noticing your natural rhythm.
taking this opportunity to tune in, being the observer, being the witness, first noticing any sensations in your physical body. Is there anything that really stands out to you right now? Slowly allowing those thoughts, whatever came up, to dissolve. Bringing your attention, bringing your awareness. Noticing where you're at emotionally and mentally. Being honest with yourself. Not labeling it good or bad or judging yourself for being where you're at. This is simply the act of observing, becoming aware of what's going on. Taking a deep inhale into your nose, filling up through your chest all the way to your lower belly, pause, exhale to let that go. Taking a deep inhale, expanding through the heart to the belly, pause, exhale to release. Can you create a little more space in the body? Last time, inhale. And exhale to let that go. Letting go of any tension that might be sitting in the body. And whenever you're ready, you can gently flutter your eyes open. Now that I have you in this moment, here, now, present, grounded, let's dive in. Meditation is such a trendy thing to do these days that it is not only a staple practice for those of us in the wellness industry, but for the mainstream medical community too. In fact, it's this intersectionality between the East and West that I truly find so fascinating. Allowing yourself to be still and focus only on the here and now is definitely not an easy task. Simple, but not easy. But with practice, you really do start to see a shift in your emotional state. Your focus is better, your mental state is calmer, and among so many other benefits, you're just able to process your emotions easier on a daily basis. This focus on your emotions and the science behind why meditation works so well is where we dive into today's episode with my guest, Dr. Dan Siegel. Yes, you'll probably see and hear me have a few fangirl moments. Enjoy. (laughs) I'm so pleased to welcome such a distinguished guest onto the Soul Compass podcast today. Dr. Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He's an award-winning educator, a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, 
and recipient of several honorary fellowships. Dr. Siegel is also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, an educational organization which offers online learning and in-person seminars that focus on how the development of Mindsight in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. We cover so many topics today but a few that we'll dive into are the pillars of mindfulness training, the similarities between attachment parenting and mindfulness, working on your inner child narrative, one of my favorite things to do, the integration of Eastern and Western medicine, what it's like attending a completely silent retreat, something that really personally scares me, a brief look into the wheel of awareness, me plus we equals muy, if you were wondering why the title was dedicated to that. We'll reveal it, don't you worry. And this idea of an integrated identity. Helping and healing humanity and the planet through this focus on integration. So without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Dan Siegel onto the podcast today. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, it's great to be here with you. I am a little jealous because I haven't been able to get to a Mindful Society conference in Toronto, which is where I'm based. Uh, but I did get to see you at Summit LA last year in November. And I got front row and I couldn't wait. I was like a fangirl up there just waiting to hear you speak. And being here today with you is just such an honor. So thank you so much for connecting with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. Often I find well, our interviewees, our guests on the show, get into this self-discovery journey because there's some sort of catalyst that, you know, pushes us into this journey. And I'm curious for you because I know that you've been researching and with all of your credentials, what shifted your research and really, I'm sure, your journey in the mindfulness direction? When I was in medical school, people didn't focus on um, what patients were feeling and, you know, what they were thinking or even what the students were feeling and thinking. And I got very disillusioned with medicine, so I dropped out of school. And during the year, what ended up being a year away, I really came to deeply appreciate from the experiential point of view that what we experience in terms of our feelings, what has meaning in our lives, where we pay attention or don't, or what's in our awareness, all those things, let's just call it the mind, the subjective experience of being alive, was quite real. So I went back to school, the same school, with a kind of drive to say, is the mind real? And the feeling was, I think the answer is yes. And then, it's not only real, but it's really important. So that started me on a journey back in the late 70s, early 80s, to try to bring into my training as a physician the importance of awareness and attention and intention and meaning and stories and all that stuff. 
years later, after I was trained as a psychiatrist and then child psychiatrist and a researcher in parent-child relationships called attachment, by accident, after I wrote a textbook on the developing mind with my daughter's preschool director, she and I were putting together a book for parents that said sort of why parents paying attention to the inner life of a child was so important. And we said, well, those parents need to be conscientious and they need to be awake and they need to be caring and aware and compassionate. We said, my God, those are too many words. Let's come up with one word. So we go, okay, well, I guess they need to be mindful. And then we wrote a book called Parenting from the Inside Out, Mary Hartzell and I did. And people said, when are you going to teach us to meditate? And I was already kind of like an outsider in the field of academia because I was saying the mind was bigger than the body and broader than the brain. And it was a relational process as much as an embodied process. And so people would think weirdly of me if I was going to ask them to meditate, which back in those days was like a not really solidly scientifically grounded thing to do. But anyway, so I said, what kind of meditation was it? And they said, oh, it's mindfulness meditation. And I said, what's that? And they go, what? And, you know, there's a whole thing, of course, called mindfulness meditation. It's been around for 2,600 years. Only I was so short-sighted, I didn't know about it. So that began for the first time, me going, oh, wow, what is this story? And then right after that book came out, I was asked to be on a panel with a guy at a conference who I hadn't heard of. So I read his two books and read his two scientific papers. And his name is John Kabat-Zinn. And he had brought mindfulness as a term into the medical community at University of Massachusetts, Worcester. And I found it really fascinating that the outcome findings for John Kabat-Zinn and Richie Davidson's work was almost identical to my field. I'm an attachment researcher. What we had shown secure attachment promotes, you know, awareness and emotional understanding and all this kind of stuff. What that meant was you could see some overlap between relationality in terms of love between a parent and a child and the relationality <coughs> that was nurtured with mindfulness. And that was really fascinating. Wow. I was getting chills because I'm just thinking how it must have been when you first started. And meditation, I know now is such a trendy thing and people are really doing that. But you and John were really pioneering the way. And it's really well, fast. Not, so much, not me. Well, I want to just be really clear. Not me. I was just kind of a, 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 a unconsciously who happened by accident to use a word that John had been deeply, deeply devoting his life to cultivating. So I wouldn't call myself that. Uh, I was just like a student of, you know, of everything and the student of life. And, and I was fascinated that the attachment world and the mindfulness meditation world seemed actually to be resonating with each other in ways we can talk about. But yeah, so it was fascinating. So what are some ways that they resonate with each other? Well, one way, I mean, first of all, in the outcome measures that, that I noted when I was on the panel with John, uh, one way was that in mindfulness meditation, which some people include training focused attention and opening awareness, and other people would take those two and build it with compassion training. So there's kind of a debate in the literature of what do we mean by mindfulness training? So for short, the two pillars of focused attention, open awareness, some people add the third pillar of compassion training, where you cultivate an attitude of kindness and care towards the inner life and towards the life within another body. 
that you weren't born into. I try to avoid the word self and other as much as I can. So those three pillar trainings lead to emotional balance and resilience. They lead to self-awareness. They lead to mutual relationships that are helpful. They lead to some really wonderful ways. There's a sense of self that's fully kind of realizing its potential. Let's put it that way. You meet your intellectual potential. Your attention is good. Your sense of self is coherent. You have a narrative that can make sense of your life, this kind of stuff. That's with mindfulness meditation. It turns out secure attachment, ditto. The exact same thing. So, you know, it, what was really funny was when I first started seeing these overlaps and I said it to John on the panel, I go, you know, I don't know anything about meditation. I've never meditated before in my life, but my God, I've read your two papers and your two books and it looks like it's exactly like my field, which has extensive research showing the exact same outcomes. And he goes, well, I don't know anything about attachment, but you don't know anything about meditation. I said, absolutely, I don't know anything about it. He goes, go meditate. So the first time I meditated was at a week-long silent retreat with a bunch of scientists. I ended up writing a book about it. Like, here's this naive diving into meditation by spending a week with all these other experienced meditators, you know? So it was like, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, but uh, it was interesting for sure. I think what they share in common is attunement. Attunement is a word we can use for focusing attention on the inner world. So you can have personal attunement for tuning into your own world inside the body you're born into, or you can have interpersonal attunement for tuning in, let's say, to a baby, what she's feeling, what she's thinking, what has meaning for her. And in my field of attachment research, parents who tune into the internal world of the child, who see the mind of the child, mind sight is what we call it, they have kids who develop all those things we just mentioned. And I think mindfulness, I think, is a way of changing the relationship with yourself. So you have in, intrapersonal attunement, whereas attachment security is interpersonal attunement. So I think that's what's going on. Oh, that's so fascinating. We do actually have a lot of parents that listen to the podcast. Do you have any tips for them while they're raising their children that you have found to be really successful in terms of the mindfulness field? You mean for parents to raise their kids with secure attachment or do you mean for them to get their kids to meditate? I would say maybe secure attachment. So Tina Payne Bryce and I have written a number of books, Whole Brain Child, Yes Brain, No Drama Discipline, and a new one, The Power of Showing Up. The way I like to word it, and it's really based on what Mary Hartzell and I wrote in a book called Parenting from the Inside Out, parental self-understanding is the best predictor of how kids turn out in terms of security of attachment. And when I went to the researcher, who's my teacher, Mary Main, and I said, Mary, you know, your research instrument, the adult attachment interview, which is the most robust predictor of security of attachment of a child, is if the parent has made sense of her life or his life. And I'm trained in the AI through Mary and Eric Hesse. When you look at the coding process for determining if a per person has a coherent narrative, it basically is a 100% overlap with a field that Mary and Eric knew nothing about, mindfulness. And it's really a way of taking a narrative and assessing the mindfulness of the speaker. And uh, so it being trained in the, in the AAI, being a therapist, and then beginning to learn about mindfulness, 
it was such an exciting time. This is now, you know, 2005, 2006, you know, to go, whoa. Um, and then when I found mindfulness teachers who would say things like self does not exist and narratives are the enemy. And I would go, what did you just say? And they go, self does not exist and narratives are the lie. Stories are a lie. And I would go, well, that's fascinating. Tell me more, you know? It actually was some pretty heated arguments because their worldview was that self is a delusion. And I think maybe what they meant to say was separate self is a delusion, but they wouldn't talk like that. They would say, and I would say, do you mean separate self? They go, no, no, I mean any self. There is no self. And I go, well, actually, you know, in my field, attachment, and then they would go, in Buddhism, for example, we want to get rid of attachment. You're totally delusional, they would say to me, and I, or they would call me a, a dualist. You know, that true reality is there's, there's, there's no dualism. And I would say, well, isn't that kind of dualistic to kind of take such a dualistic view that you're either a dualist or not a dualist? Isn't that like dualism? It was very strange, I got, I got to say, because that's not my background. So I have no problem just confronting some of the main teachers in these areas. I don't care. You know, I mean, I care, but it, 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 I wasn't intimidated. That's what I mean by I don't care. And then the business of narrative, you know, in the attachment world, the coherence of your narrative is the best predictor of how your children turn out. And around that time, I started getting patients, because I'm a therapist, who were meditation teachers. And one of them in particular was a person who was working on the ending his third marriage. And I said, well, let's do the adult attachment interview. And he goes, what's that? And I said, well, it's a research-established interview where we explore in a very specific way your memories of your childhood and see how you made sense of them. He goes, I don't do that. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't do that? And he goes, I'm a mindfulness teacher. He was like a major teacher. And he goes, I live only in the present. I don't reflect on the past. I said, okay, well, okay, well, how's that working for you? You know, it wasn't working so well. And I, so we did the AAI because I said, look, right now in your brain, in the present moment, your present moments are being filtered by stuff that happened in past present moments called memory. And that's how neuroplasticity works for your brain. And maybe that's part of the issue. Anyway, so he's very courageous, very brave. We did the AAI and huge trauma came up that he had never talked about. And it was really, really powerful. And he did the work to realize you, sometimes you have to go to the past to see how you're imprisoned by unreflected upon past experience. Because he came up with a narrative, which is, I'm a non-dualist who does not go to the past because all that exists is non-existence, you know? And it was like, okay, well, all right. I'm not going to argue against that, but I don't, it doesn't seem like you're so happy. Right. Wow. This is why I love the integration of East and West. And this is why I'm so fascinated to talk with you today, because I know one, you're so open minded based on all of your experiences. But the inner child work, I know I work a lot with my therapist on on that. And I have always practiced yoga. I've always practiced meditation. But the inner child work has helped so much for the present moment in helping me unravel belief systems and also beliefs that were not necessarily mine. But you know, that's exactly why reflecting on the past and making a coherent narrative is so crucial because some of the things that are imprisoning you are not yours. I mean, you have to reflect on them to know that they're there and, and disentangle your selfing experience because we're more like verbs and nouns and we can be rigidified as a noun 
without our even knowing it with all these beliefs that people talk about. Yeah, I wanna reel back a little bit because you said that you went to a silent retreat good for you for for was it a week or like 10 days a week a week a it was a week. week did you have any aha moments when you were doing that silent retreat well yeah i mean you know the first was i think for anyone listening who who knows this and maybe you know this yourself you know we're so often like chatty and talking all the time so silence is number one you don't talk but number two, you also don't do nonverbal communication. So it's the royal silence, not just speaking. You don't look people in the eye, you look away, you're not doing nonverbal signals to them. So that was really interesting um, and hard to not engage with people around me, especially some of them were like heroes of mine that were like on my same hall and I would love to have chatted with them, but it was a silent retreat, so I couldn't chat with them. You know, scientists I've always wanted to meet. Anyway, so that was the first thing. The second thing was, it was amazing how when, you, when you're surrounded by people and intentionally not connecting with them, how busy your social mind gets. Now we know we call this the social brain part of it, you know, that gives us a sense of wholeness. And we want to know what, what's going on with my inner life, what's going on with another person, all this stuff. So you really are intentionally in the royal silence, quieting that down. And that's really hard to do. By day, maybe two or three of learning these new meditation techniques that I had never heard of, you know, focusing on the breath, returning to the breath, you know, I thought I was going to lose my mind. And I told my teacher in the little meetings we have at night, and also you get a private meeting twice during the week, I said, I thought I was going nuts because I thought the instruction was to stop thinking, you know, I was thinking a lot, you know, and so she said, no, you know, now you can just let the thoughts be there, but just don't get swept up by them, which is really helpful. And, you know, I had already been doing this thing with my patients called the wheel of awareness. So I was familiar with distinguishing the hub from the rim, but I wanted to just sort of let that go and just try to be with whatever these Buddhist teachings they were teaching. It was at Insight Meditation Society. So I let that go. But even when I brought up the wheel to one of the teachers at the, my second meeting, he goes, don't be so sure of yourself. So I stopped talking to anyone about the wheel because he was so intimidating to me and maybe reminded me of my father or something. I don't know. One teacher I felt very supported by, the other not very much. Then the next thing that happened like day three was there was like, like a, a shift where things got very clear. And I don't mean like intellectually clear. I mean, just spacious and open. And, you know, things became like hilariously amusing. Like let's say a walking meditation lifting up a foot, moving the foot forward, putting the heel down on the floor, moving toward the ball of the foot, the other foot simultaneously, slowly lifting up from the heel, lifting up from the ball of the foot, the toes still being there. I, I would just start to laugh. It was like a miracle to be awake and aware and alive and moving these things we call feet. It just became hilarious, but I couldn't share that with anyone because you weren't supposed to talk to anybody. And things like one time we had dinner and I was just like in love with an apple and like I was looking at the apple, feeling the apple in my fingers, smelling the apple, tasting the apple, even listening to the apple. But then suddenly I could see all the people that ever had ever planted apple seeds and generations of humanity that had, you know, had orchards. And, and it was a beautiful, it was just this moment of deep connection 
And then I got up from the table, put my tray away, and then I go out to look at the moon rising. And it's just absolutely exquisite. And I look to my right, I have this feeling there's someone there. And in the book called The Mindful Brain, where I talk about this, I just said, and a friend was by my side. What well, was John Kabat-Zinn, who had told me to go to this moon. But so John is like also walking out to see the moon. And we can't talk to each other, but there's the moon rising. My eyes are taking it in. I look to my side. There's John who got me there. And I'm absolutely in love with him and in love with the moon, in love with the apple, in love with my feet. I mean, just love is everywhere. And that was like day three. And then I would hear all these, I'm not a big joke teller at all. I don't even know how to tell a joke, but I would hear all these jokes. Everything became like a joke. So I didn't know if a silent retreat meant you couldn't laugh at your own jokes, but I would end up like laughing. I would see little, like something written on like a milk carton and I would just laugh at like what letters were, like there were symbols and everything was dissolving into this interconnected verb-like set of events that were just, it was just like about interconnection and love. And I don't know, it was just exquisite. And that was like day four and day five. It was just like a love fest, you know. And then day six, when we came out of silence, it was really sad because everyone was chatting, 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 chatting. And then you were focused on, oh, does a person understand what I'm saying? Do they understand what I'm saying? Do they understand what they're saying? And then that we did that for an hour. And I thought, this is exhausting. And then they, they rang the bell and I said, back into silence. And I was like, Oh, that's so good. We're back into silence. Drop back into the noble silence for another whatever, 12 hours. And it was like the sanctuary of silence and spaciousness was like basically the hub of the wheel. It was like this open place. And I, now I do the wheel awareness every day as my regular practice like this morning. Not every day is the same, but you know, some days like this morning, it was like, oh my God, you drop into this place and it's like, there's no time. It's eternity. There's no space, it's like infinity. And it's just filled with a sense of love and gratitude and connection. And I don't know. I mean, no one was teaching that, but if I were teaching that retreat now, I would be very direct about having people do the wheel of awareness. And we have a wheel practice, we do. So now I'm a you know a wheel teacher from way back then, when that was, you know, 14 years ago. But now I, you know, do regular wheel of awareness workshops where I'm gonna say this with a lot of humility, but since I'm not trained in contemplative practice, I don't have a Buddhist background, I don't have any kind of spiritual background. I'm a scientist and a clinician, I'm a physician and a therapist. I just take the concept of integration where it's the differentiation of parts of a system and link them. And what we do is we integrate consciousness with the wheel of awareness by differentiating the knowing in the hub, this metaphoric wheel of awareness from the things that are the knowns on the rim and then systematically differentiating them by moving the spoke around. And, you know, I've done it now with 45,000 people in person, recorded the first 10,000 when people respond, and the results are absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's in this book Aware. So far, it provides a really consilient, is the word we use, you know, it puts together different fields like math and physics and stuff and biology and psychology and contemplative studies, and it helps make sense of what that silent retreat did in a pretty, um, to me, really exciting way we can talk about. Amazing. Could you break down the Wheel of Awareness for us and for our listeners? You can come to the website for free. You can do the Wheel of Awareness. And we have all sorts of trainings in the Wheel, live, but also recorded that you can do. So I'll just say this about the Wheel. Right through the wall uh, where in this room where I am, there's a table. And the table has a center glass 
part to it and an outer wooden rim part to it. And I would bring my patients up from the chair where they were sitting. And this was in the, the late 90s, you know, when I first actually made this table just for architectural reasons. I designed this table not for meditation reasons, but I wanted them to try taking two ideas and put them together that integration was health, differentiating linking. I'd written a bunch about that. And then consciousness was needed for change. And that was really an interesting idea for like parenting or therapy or education. You need people to be conscious. So I thought, what if you integrated consciousness? That's where that idea comes from. And then I looked at the table and I said, oh, that's cool. You could put the knowing of consciousness in the hub of this table and differentiate from the stuff on the rim, like four sections of the rim on the table. It's four, divided into four areas. The energy flow from outside the body, like what you hear, see, smell, taste, or touch, is just energy flow from outside the body. Then you have, you know, we always talk an energy flow in the field I'm in, energy flow from inside the body called the sixth sense or interoception. And then you have mental activities like feelings and thoughts and memories. And then you have your relational sense, your sense of connection to other people on the planet. You're part of nature. So you move this rim around and differentiate all those rim elements from each other. You spoke, I'm sorry, you move the spoke around the rim, single spoke. And then you, in a more advanced stage, you bend the spoke around or retract the spoke. So you just drop into the hub. That's the whole practice. That's it. And when I presented it to Richie Davidson's lab, they were so excited. They said, why don't you add statements of kindness, you know, compassion statements? And I said, well, there's no science behind that, which there wasn't at the time. It was a long time ago. And they said, oh, here, we, we did a study. We just haven't published it yet. They showed me the results. Barb Fredrickson did a similar study. She showed me her results, uh, these scientists. So I said, okay, I'll put them in the wheel. If it's science-based, integrative, I'll put it in the wheel. So the original wheel had none of those statements. Then once I went to Richie's lab and Barb's uh, uh, work was became available to me, I put them in. So then you also add these statements of positivity, which is fun because I can add this word we, which I love, you know, me plus we equals we, this integrated identity. So that's how the whole wheel ends. Anyway, and that's the one I started doing with the, the, all these people in the workshops. So the bottom line is people would start feeling empowered by integrating consciousness in my practice. So I started teaching it to my students who are therapists. They started finding for themselves it was really empowering. They were teaching to their clients who, like my patients, reduced anxiety, reduced mild to moderate depression. It helped them with trauma. They worked with some people, like I had a number of people, sadly, who were, had life-threatening illnesses. And then the panic and terror they had about dying, it really helped them get calm and clear. My father was dying, actually. It helped him. Not the wheel, but just the ideas from the wheel. So then it became like, whoa, this is like amazing. And uh, then I started learning mindfulness. And I thought, well, maybe all of mindfulness is where you integrate consciousness. You know, so I started teaching with Jack Cornfield a lot. And Jack was open to that. because He's a very open-minded, wonderful person. And so we started teaching a lot together. It was like, okay, here's Buddhist teachings. Well, this matches the idea of integration as hell, even though they don't talk about integration. And then I started teaching with people like the Dalai Lama and five times I talked with him. And um, even though integration is not spoken about in according to the Dalai Lama, it fits with the whole idea of compassion. I mean, compassion and kindness empowers us to believe, feel and joy, you know, are really integration made visible. So this is what my patients were experiencing, my clients, and I started doing it, in my students' clients. And then I started doing workshops and people who weren't in therapy, they started getting better over these different things. And so it became like this amazing 
question what is going on. Why would a 25-minute practice that people start doing regularly lead to such deep changes? Why, you know, I did it once in with Jack in um, Seattle and a Microsoft engineer just retired. He had this experience of incredible connection to all things when he got in the hub, or I did it in a parliament in another country, and one of the parliamentarians was tearful when he said, I've never felt so much love and connection in my life. And that became the theme that in the hub, when people just drop into the pure hub experience, three things were there. Open awareness, interconnection, and love. It was as if those were like three threads of a singular tapestry of life. And then as a scientist who was collecting this data of first-person direct subjective experience with a very controlled stimulus, the wheel of awareness practice, I did it the same way every time with all these people. Now I mix it up, you know, because now the study, the survey is done, and now I can have fun. Here's what I think the mechanism is. Let's do the wheel now, whatever. We take a week at Esalen, and we do this every year. And, you know, I think there's a mechanism we can talk about that the survey reveals of why love, interconnection, and awareness emerge from the hub, that the hub is a metaphor for something. And in the book Aware, um, with my daughter's help as the illustrator for the book, Maddie Siegel, you know, she helped me really illustrate what I think awareness is, where consciousness arises from. And so it's been an incredibly exciting time because it's just a guess, it could be completely wrong, but it's built on careful collection of first-person experiences with a very controlled stimulus, the wheel of awareness. It basically says, if this is what the common description is all around the planet, no matter a person's meditation history or not, no meditation history, educational background, gender, race, ethnic background, religious background, you name it, doesn't matter. The results, if I go to a workshop, my students can't believe this when they come with me to this workshop at the workshop, they go, you know, we heard this three times ago, two times ago, and one time ago. I said, I know this happens every time. And in fact, one person in Australia, I did five cities. She said, no one is going to believe that at every one of these workshops, you have 500 people in every workshop. This is why you can get to 45,000 pretty fast. She said, everyone takes the microphone, says the same thing. It's not that everyone has the same experience, but in the five cities, you could have made a recording. I said, I am recording. I'm recording all of this. And so it was fascinating. And so then as a scientist, I had to say to myself, what explains the fact, especially when people get in the hub, that time disappears, that a feeling of connection to everything unfolds, that a lot of people will say, it's empty but full. It isn't that myself disappeared. It's like myself expanded. So I looked at every study I could find of the brain and consciousness. And the main thing you find in those studies is the beautiful work of uh, Giulio Tononi and, and Christoph Kalk and the late um, Gerald Edelman on something called the Integrated Information Theory of Consciousness, which basically says that when different regions of the brain link together, so differentiation and linkage equals integration, when you get that integration, somehow consciousness arises. So I thought that's a nice theory. It doesn't say why consciousness arises, or it doesn't even correspond to what the wheel of awareness shows. So I know all those studies. I read them, but they didn't help. So then I had to say, okay, if all the existing research on the different proposed neural correlates of consciousness don't correspond 
with the wheel of awareness empirical findings. That's another kind of empirical data. It's just called first person instead of third person. Where can we turn to find consilience, which is E.O. Wilson's term for when independent fields come to the same insights. So, you know, I had been working since, gosh, 1992 with the notion that the mind is an emergent property of energy flow. That didn't make me friends with many people, but anyway, I stuck with it. And um, that flow is much bigger than what happens in the brain. Of course, the brain is about energy flow throughout the stuff in the head. That's fine. No one's putting the brain down, but it also goes through the whole body. But guess what? Skin or skull is an impermeable boundary for energy flow. And when energy has symbolic value, that flow is called information. So we say energy and information, flow means change. Anyway, so it's bottom line is energy. So I said, well, who's an expert in energy? And the answer is physicists. So just around that time when I was facing all this frustration, like brain studies just don't cut it at this moment anyway, I was invited to spend a week with 150 physicists in an old monastery. It didn't help that it was in Italy. I mean, that was great. And in those days, I could eat gluten, so we had a lot of pizza and pasta. So I hung with these physicists, and I said, what's energy? What's energy? What's energy? And they said the most amazing thing. Energy, ultimately, can be defined as the movement from possibility to actuality. I said, whoa. And so ultimately, I started drawing it out in a little drawing for some students who were there. And I showed it to different physicists there. And ultimately, one of them in particular who was there, Arthur Zions, who is the president of Mind and Life with the Dalai Lama and was a quantum physicist, he loves what I'm about to tell you, that if I say to you, I'm going to say a word, and there are a million words you and I share, what's your chance of knowing which word I'm going to say? I don't know. I guess one in a million. <laughs> exactly. It's one in a million. That's one in a million. So we put on a graph, the bottom would be where one in a million is. It's close to zero. So if you're doing the up and down axis on a graph, it would be the y-axis, and that would be near zero. Not quite zero, one in a million, near zero. Now I say ocean, and that possibility of all the words has now transformed into an actuality, and we put it up at the top of this graph, which would be 100%, right? One out of one. I said ocean. Fine. Now if there's just, like let's say there are five oceans in the world, and I say which ocean am I going to pick? You'd have a one out of five chance. So we'd start that process of energy flow where there's like what we call a plateau when you make it a three-dimensional graph where time goes across in the x-axis that's change really and then the z-axis going in and out of this plane of this drawing we would have is diversity how many things are there at once basically what you have at the bottom is a plane of possibility where our possibilities are and then in this case we have five possible oceans so it'll be a little circle up where the probability the probability curve is the up and down axis would be 20%, one out of five. And now I say Indian Ocean, and it pops up to the 100%. So energy flow moves from these places of possibility or probability into actuality. Okay, fine. So then, if you look at it, I thought, well, that's what a thought is. When people say thoughts arise, they say they kind of bubble up from somewhere and then dissolve again. I think what a thought is, or an emotion, or a memory, or all that stuff, basically our energy flow that's moving from possibility through probability usually to actuality and then dissolving back again. And when people describe the hub of the wheel, 
I think they're describing the plane of possibility. The formless source of all form is what a physicist would call it. Arthur likes to call Arthur Science likes to call it, you know, the sea of potential. It correlates with the quantum vacuum. And I think this is the origin of consciousness. And this could be completely wrong, this proposal, but if it's true, what it means is that when you do a practice like the wheel, but it could be in many mindfulness practices, I think, do this, they just don't name it like this, that what you're doing besides the wheel gets you the three pillars that research shows are important to do. You get them all in one practice, but you also can differentiate the hub from the rim. So you're dropping out of plateaus and peaks, which are the rim stuff, into the plane of possibility. And why this is important is because, and there's lots of implications of this, but one of them is the quantum vacuum or the sea of potential allows us to realize that physics has demonstrated we have two realms we live in. And when I've asked techies at Wisdom 2.0, how many of you know there are two realms? 1% raised their hand out of 3,000 people in the room. A few weeks later, I was in a room with 3,000 therapists. About 1% raised their hand. 99% of well-educated, well-informed people don't know this. Yet it was the cover story a month before Aware came out in Scientific American. When do these two realms meet? So it's like when you swim, if you swim, sometimes you're underwater doing the breaststroke, and then you come up for air. There's an air realm and there's a water realm. Nobody freaks out about that. One reality, there's an air realm, water realm. Big deal. Make sure you come up for air. Well, I think these two realms are basically called the quantum realm of microstates, small things, and the Newtonian classical realm of macrostates. So a macrostate is a condensation of energy into something we call matter. And the properties that Newton figured out um, have certain mathematical equations that determine, like, if you fly an airplane, how it works, or if you try to predict where the planets go, and, or driving your car, or walking your body. All that is based on Newtonian classical physics called the macrostate world that you're in. But that's the body and your car and airplanes. We also have small things, not macrostates, but small energy packets called quanta or units of energy, which is really a probability field like an electron or a photon. And this unit of energy, this quanta, has none of the properties of Newtonian physics. It has a whole different set of equations which basically go like this. In the macrostate Newtonian classical world, things are like noun-like entities that are separate from one another. But in the quantum world, things are verb-like events that are massively interconnected. In the macrostate world, you have something called an arrow of time which is a directionality of change. So if we break open an egg, because an egg is a macrostate collection of molecules, you can't unbreak it. There's a directionality of change. We call awareness of the directionality of change time. There's probably no such thing of time as something flowing, but there is a directionality of change in the macrostate world. In the microstate quantum world, no arrow of time. It's timeless. The macrostate world is where things manifest and dissolve away. In the microstate quantum world, things are basically arising in this formless source of all form, and you get this very different quality. I think that's where interconnection comes from, and it's where love comes from. And in teaching this now, 
to people to experientially dive into the hub to look at this proposed mechanism, if it's true, it could be completely wrong, but if it's true, what it means is you learn to let life happen and let love light up the world rather than make it happen. And so often we're taught in school to be certain of things and to act like a noun, like you're separate from other people on the planet. And we're destroying earth because of that illusion of separation. Einstein called it an optical delusion of consciousness. And, you know, part of the journey I think we all have to get on is to move from this separate noun like me. And yes, you have a body, you should sleep your body well, enjoy your body, exercise your body, feed your body well. That's great. The body gets about 100 years to live. Great. That's the noun-like Newtonian reality you have. That's me. But you also have a verb-like quantum we, which is very, very different. And so in that difference, what you get to do is allow yourself the freedom to integrate. Yes, I have a body. When I come to a red light, I need to activate a plateau and peak that says, I know how to drive a car. I press on the brakes. Because if you don't, you will become one with everything at the intersection. You know, you have a body. And that's just the truth. So, but you also have consciousness, which has many elements of the quantum reality in it, the quantum realm. And it's not a hypothesis, the quantum realm. What the hypothesis is, is that awareness comes from that. That's what the hypothesis is. So anyway, this has been an incredible moment in the unfolding of this issue because it allows us then to look at all the different contemplative practices wherever they're coming from hinduism buddhism the islamic faith jewish faith christian faith the indigenous people so far i've had so many wisdom traditions come to me and say this wheel of awareness and this plane of possibility proposal fits with my people's teachings whatever my people means and i go that's great that's beautiful. That's consilient. And it may just be that this is a, uh, if it's accurate, this might be the bridge between science and spirituality. And if it's true, then the exciting thing is we have a lot of work to do as a humanity to dissolve the delusion of our separate nature as nouns, embrace the verb like reality of our interconnection, and let awareness, interconnection, and love be the way we live. Oh, like just like fireworks going off, Dan, right now. So many light bulbs as you're talking. I feel like I'm sitting front row and I'm so excited to share this episode with all of our listeners. But I'm just, I keep thinking in my head, oh my goodness, the amount that people in our Western culture, we fill our schedules in in thinking that this is what's going to bring us happiness. This is what's going to bring us joy. But from everything that you're saying, and also from my personal practice and knowing and meditating every day, it's in that spaciousness that I do feel the most connected. And it's so beautiful that you're able to verbalize and explain what I'm feeling inside, like as you're talking. (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's so beautiful. It's really, really special. And you just, I can feel your passion and like you're so in alignment with your gift in this lifetime because as you're talking, it's just like, it's like flowing through you and the joy that I see in your face and your smile and in your eyes, it's, it's really, really special and such a beautiful thing to witness. And I'm just very, very grateful that 
for your work. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. It's so interesting you say it about face because people can't see your face, but I was going to say exactly those words about what I see in your face. Oh. That's beautiful. Well, we're just mirroring each other, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so good. Well, look at what we can offer the world to join together. I mean, really, in deep community of liberating one another from the illusion of the separate self. Of course, you have a body, treat your body well, that's the me. But the we part of it gets equally honored as who we are. So you don't lose the me. No one is saying, oh, just get rid of the me and just become a we. We're, we're a we, you know, and this is a beautiful opportunity. I think, you know, there's a, a end note to uh, you have a beautiful group in Toronto that's the me to we group and they asked me to write the end note for their beautiful book that's coming out on me to we where I say you know the beautiful thing about the organization me to we is it doesn't say get rid of me it's really more about we is what they mean by that and, and they were so excited about that so I'm really honored to be a part of that journey with them because I think when pe kids are raised and adolescents emerge into their lives thinking about things as a separate self, they realize there's something really wrong. And people are running around with this feeling of not belonging and not feeling like there's meaning there. But then when they do this me to we is the way you could say it, then there's this incredible energy that's released because I think people come to realize that we as a me has been living a lie. And it's not only misguided and wrong, it's destructive. It's, toxic and you know if we don't change it it's going to be lethal when you realize we are all connected like that you go the job is to really support one another for what arthur designs taught me the term pervasive leadership to empower each other to really take on these ideas no one owns them it's really about empowering one another really supporting one another with empathic joy and really support and encouragement and then to say okay we're not only a part of each other as a human family we're really a, a fundamental part of nature. So we stop treating Earth like a trash can and instead realize the plants and animals around us are us. And that's a different way to live. And I think Earth is waiting for us to wake up from the slumber of the delusion of the only separate self. Realize, yeah, okay, you get this time to live in a body, that's fine. But who you are is going to exist for generations beyond this body you get a chance to live in. And then there's this kind of joy where you go, okay, I'll make the most of this time in this body, but I'm going to work for journeys that will support people 200 years from now because they're moss too. Moss. I love this language. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful way to talk. <laughs> Dan, you do. Look at you. You're cracking jokes. You, you can tell a joke. <laughs> Thank you. I'll tell my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, but it is, it's, it's so true. And often we are so disconnected from earth and, and the environment. So I'm really grateful that you brought that up. A lot of the studies that I have, you know, personally embarked on have been through the yogic lineage, um, studying a lot of chakras. So learning about energy from your perspective was really, really enlightening. And even with the energetic system, the chakra system, when I study it, it is about finding that sense of, you know, of, of self and being strong as a unique 
individual, but it is really about that interconnectedness, the muy, um, that you've so beautifully labeled. But it is something that I think that we need to tap into more and more. It's that compassion, that empathy has been lost a little bit and and we're getting back. I know we are and people like yourself, little light worker. <laughs> and I hope that I can be a light for people who are listening as well, but it's just it's beautiful to see you really lighting the way for a lot of us. And I really 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 appreciate that. Well, let's join together really on a kind of a we movement, seriously, because it's it may be actually as simple as that to really take the word self and make it a kind of plural verb like we rather than a singular noun like only me. It may be that simple. And it doesn't mean that that's going to be easy to do because there are a lot of you know challenges ahead of us. But I, I think we can do it. I mean, literally together, our collaborative nature, our creative nature, our compassionate nature are ready to be tapped into. And it's going to be a win-win-win situation. The win part is for the individual, in quotes. You get a sense of being real in the world and belonging and identity that's fuller than just a separate, isolated self. For the relationships in the world, it's going to be fantastic because you're going to realize everybody's got your back. And I know that sounds idealistic, but I think it's actually doable. And for the planet, it's going to be amazing because people don't need to be excessively differentiated and then say, oh, it's just about what we need to do for our factory or what we're doing to put plastic in there. Who cares? I drink this and throw it in the ocean. No, that's not okay. The ocean is you. So it's going to be a win-win-win thing. We just need to identify what the issue is, which I think is the false view of a separate self, come up with a solution, an integrated identity, and then together make this a fabulous, I don't want to say world, but, uh, you know. <laughs> why not? Why not? <laughs> why not? Make it a fabulous, I've never said that before, a fabulous world together that we can do. Yes. On that powerful note, Dan, I'm going to slowly wrap this up. But I, what I really want to know for our viewers, I know you have amazing resources, amazing books that you've written. If people are at a beginner, intermediate, or advanced level, do you have any book suggestions from your collection that you might recommend? Sure. You know, um, if you're interested in the Wheel of Awareness, the book Aware takes you step-by-step, step, not only through the practice, which you can also do on our website, drdansiegel.com, D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L with D-R preceding that, dot com. Um, but the book aware will walk you through the wheel and then we'll walk you through this whole plane of possibility business and show you how to apply it in your life and give you examples of people who did. <clears throat> if you like to know more like where do all these concepts come from? They're pretty complex. Two books will be uh, good. One is the book Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, which is more like a journey book that invites you to reflect on your own life as I reflect on my own in, over the last 40 years. So it's kind of like a journey book with photos and stuff. Or if you really you know, like the science, the book, The Developing Mind, is going to come out in its third edition soon. You know, And that I weave together the plane of possibility throughout the old chapters of the old textbook. So that's really, uh, I'm excited about this new edition. And then if you like just like clinical cases or your clinical work, you know, the book Mindsight is about people's journeys through different domains of integration of change. And, and of course, there's the mindful therapist 
uh, and a book called The Pocket Guide to Interpersonal Neurobiology, where these ideas are connected in this kind of nonlinear way. So those are some of the books. I think the book, The Mindful Brain, is kind of a fun book just in terms of that thing we talked about, the silent retreat. But so much more has come out in the science since then that though, though people love that book, and I appreciate that, I would go for aware rather than the mindful brain, just because that was a long time ago and there's so much more science out now. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll make sure to link all of your resources, your website, so people know exactly where to find you. Will you be coming to Toronto anytime soon? To uh, You know, it's, let's see, I was just there a couple months ago. I don't know. It's a good question. I want to. I love it there. So I don't know. That's okay. We'll stay tuned. We'll stay tuned. Hopefully we'll get to see you at a mindful society this year. Yeah, I love that whole gathering. That's so beautiful. Amazing. Well, Dan, thank you so much again for all of your work, all of your gifts and all of your wisdom, and also for being really committed to your inner journey as well, because I know that is a huge reflection in the work that you put out into this world. So grateful that we could Thank you. connect today. Great to be here with you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope that you were inspired and found some really useful pieces of information that you might be able to implement on your self-discovery journey. All right, now for the big reveal the project that I've been working on for so long is actually called Soul Compass. Um, but the reason why I ended up starting the Soul Compass podcast was based off of a symbol that was co-created by myself and another amazing designer, Stefan Weidauer. Shout out to him. We co-created this symbol called the Soul Compass. And the Soul Compass is the symbol of your greatest journey, which is the journey back to yourself, rediscovering yourself. And it's always been a dream of mine to turn this symbol into a necklace. And last December, I partnered with Blue Boho here in Toronto, and they helped me create this beautiful piece of jewelry in gold and silver made out of recycled materials, recycled metals to create a sustainable product as well, which was really, really important to me. Started an Etsy store, my first Etsy store, so weird to say, but you can find the, it's called the Soul Compass on Etsy. And if you go over, check it out. Even if you're not really in the market to buy one of these things, check it out. I'd love to hear your feedback and see what you think. Let me know what you think. Anyways, that's it. That's the big reveal. It's like better than Christmas for me right now. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy it as well. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. Remember, to stay inspired in between our episodes, you can head on over to Instagram and follow us at Your Soul Compass and at Wonderful Soul. For free meditations and mindfulness guides, you can head over to WonderfulSoul.com. And please don't forget to hit subscribe in your podcast player so you never miss an episode. And please, 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 
If this content delighted you, leave us a note telling us on iTunes. I read every one of these personally, and your feedback really helps me grow the show and produce the type of content you find valuable. Thank you, you beautiful soul, for dedicating time to your self-discovery journey. Not only are you contributing to your own mental and emotional well-being, but you are contributing to a healthier, more harmonious world and raising the consciousness of our planet. You are amazing and beautiful, just as you are. Thank you for being part of our journey, and thank you for letting us become part of yours.